So good morning, as always. I count it a tremendous privilege to be able to open God's Word with all of you. It's Palm Sunday 2021, and apparently we're still in some sort of global pandemic thing. And uh, it's been a bit of a crazy year. Last Palm Sunday, I actually preached as well and did that from my living room. So uh, slightly different um, sort of circumstances here this morning, but uh, crazy nonetheless. Our text for this morning is derived from the Gospel according to Matthew. I want to read it again so that we can get it in the forefront of our minds. Matthew chapter 3. And we will also be in Isaiah 40. So if you would have your finger there, we will go there a little bit later. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said... The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So a brief review, back on January 31st, Pastor Scott preached a sermon called To Fulfill the Prophets. We started back in December preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to pick up on this theme of prophets today. Pastor Scott discussed three Old Testament prophecies in the latter half of Matthew 2. So if you look at your Bible, chapter 2, verse 23, they're the last Verse of chapter 2, he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. And Pastor Scott talked about what this means. It means that Jesus, our Lord, was despised and rejected by men, which picks up on the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. In chapter 2 of the Gospel of Matthew, verse 15, there's a quotation from Hosea chapter 11, Out of Egypt I called my son. And Pastor Scott talked to us about Jesus as the true Israel. And in verse 18 of chapter 2, there's a quotation from Jeremiah 31. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And Pastor Scott talked to us about how what this means in the context of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus, our Savior and Lord, brings to an end Israel's spiritual exile. I'm not going to review all those things here in detail. 
just point out that, uh, as Pastor Scott mentioned, I say again, this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is an important theme in Matthew. Matthew is the gospel to the Jews. This is very important for us to understand. And so this Jewish Old Testament mindset, it must be our mindset. That's where we're going to be this morning. And Pastor Scott noted that at least 13 times the word fulfill appears in the Gospel of Matthew. And although the word fulfill does not appear in our text this morning, in this first portion of Matthew chapter 3, we are going to return to this theme of fulfillment with the last Old Testament prophet. Who is the first Old Testament prophet? I'm going to say that again. We're going to talk about the last Old Testament prophet. Who is the first Old Testament prophet? And I'm going to come back to this. Also, just as a quick reminder, uh, exactly one month ago on February 28th, I preached a message called Enmity and Bruising in the Gospel Accounts. And at that time, I made the case that this text in Matthew 3, where we are this morning, provides the ignition point for the enmity, for the conflict between God's messengers, John and Jesus, and the Jewish religious leadership of their day. And we're obviously going to take a closer look at this ignition point this morning. So let's begin. Very basic. Who is John the Baptist? Matthew does not give us any details of John's background. In the Gospel according to Matthew, John just appears. But we know from the Gospel according to Luke that John is a second cousin to Jesus. He was born via miraculous means like many of the prominent figures in redemptive history who came before him. His mother, Elizabeth, of course, was barren. Luke chapter 1, verse 7. John the Baptist's father was named Zechariah. And he was a Levitical priest. Listen, he was a Levitical priest serving in Herod's temple in Jerusalem. He was visited by the angel Gabriel while serving in the temple. And he was told by Gabriel that he and Elizabeth would have a son and that he should name him John. Luke chapter 1 verse 13. The first thing I want you to see from Matthew's account, Matthew 3, is that John the Baptist was a bit of an eccentric. Okay? Look at Matthew 3 verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. In case you missed that the first couple of times, let that sink in. You may be thinking, what in the world is going on with this freak of a person out in the Judean wilderness? Here's what's going on. I mentioned that John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, who is also the first of the Old Testament prophets, and this is what I mean. Clearly, John the Baptist, by his clothing and his cuisine, if you will, is pointing us back to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Now, I don't have all kinds of time here this morning to review the life and the ministry and the cuisine of the prophet Elijah. You can read about him yourself from 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 2. But here are some high points, though, that you need to understand to put John the Baptist's ministry in context. All right, so first, Elijah, as I said, is the first of the Old Testament prophets. 
of which there are many that come after him. And although it is true that he did perform miracles, seven of them, Elijah's primary ministry was to be a foil to the kings of Israel of his day, notably Ahab, whose wife was the very famous Jezebel, and Ahab's son, Ahaziah. Basically, as a prophet of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, Elijah's main ministry was to speak righteousness to power. What we see in our text this morning is that John also has this same ministry. You can also see Matthew chapter 14. That's a different sermon, different day. Obviously, John doesn't speak very kindly to the Jewish religious leadership of his day. And second thing I, want, I need you to see, and this is extremely important. Elijah being the first Old Testament prophet represents the Old Testament prophetic literature. I'm going to say that again. Elijah being the first Old Testament prophet represents the Old Testament prophetic literature. And this is what I mean. We see, for example, in Jesus' day that the Old Testament was referred to as the law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. You don't have to go there, just listen. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus is speaking. Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Later on in Jesus' ministry, Matthew 22, someone came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law... And the prophets. Acts 13. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue. This is Paul and his companions. And they sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And finally, as an example, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, which Pastor Mike has been preaching through, Paul writes this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law... And the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3, 19-22. Now the law, of course, is represented by Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel. There's no controversy here. But, but what about the prophets? Who, in the Jewish mind, represents the Old Testament prophetic writings? To answer that question, I want you to fast forward with me a little bit in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. I want you to see this, Matthew chapter 17. This is the transfiguration of Jesus. I'm just going to read it for you to make a point, not exegete or explain. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What's the point? The point is this. That just as Elijah, the first of the Old Testament prophets, represents a portion of inspired revelation from God, that is Scripture, So also the arrival of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, denotes the opening of a new time of inspired revelation. That is, the New Testament canon, the New Testament scriptures, open with John's arrival. There had not, listen, there had not been scripture since the prophet Malachi. That's the last Old Testament book in your Bible. God hadn't spoken to his people in at least 400 years. That's longer than the United States has been a nation. And now here comes this eccentric. His name is John. And he's speaking on behalf of God. His arrival signals very clearly that something big is about to happen. So to summarize, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin born of miraculous means to the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Second, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets who comes as another Elijah. Turn with me back to Malachi. It's right before Matthew. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi, which I just mentioned. The last two verses of your Old Testament. This is what they say, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. God speaking. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah the prophet was who they were waiting for. Finally, in summary, as John the Baptist has come and as the prophesied second Elijah, John will speak righteousness to power. And his arrival, listen, his arrival signals that God himself is now going to provide additional inspired revelation, which by God's grace, we now hold in our hands. Okay? So that's what's happening in Matthew 3. That is who... John the Baptist is. Now, what role, R-O-L-E, does he play in his day, in Jesus' day, in this great drama of redemption? So let's talk about the role of John the Baptist as herald of the king. 
herald of the king. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said... The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, in your Bible, that last portion of verse 3 is likely set apart in some way from the rest of the text. Some Bibles, like the New American Standard Version, have that portion of the text indented and in all caps. In the ESV, the English Standard Version, which many of you are carrying, it doesn't have it in all caps, but it is indented and offset. Do you see that in front of you? The reason that is, is because... The reason it's set apart from the rest of that narrative is because it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Okay? It's a quotation from the Old Testament. And as I mentioned before from Pastor Scott's sermon, here again in Matthew we have a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And this prophecy comes from the prophet Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Okay? So if you would go there, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Before we read it again, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember that these documents, like the Gospel according to Matthew, they were written by hand. Why is that relevant? Well, it's relevant because when an author 2,000 years ago quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, it is extremely likely that he's got more than that one verse in mind. Okay? This is very important. He simply, Matthew, simply doesn't take the time and the energy and the ink and the paper, which was incredibly valuable at that time, to write down the extended quotation. And there is no doubt that this is the case here with Matthew's quotation of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So we're going to read Isaiah 40, 1 through 11 again. Because there are some things in the larger context that you absolutely must see in order for you to understand Matthew chapter 3. To fully understand the message of John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, O herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. The first thing I want you to see here in Isaiah 40, specifically verse 9, is that the voice that cries in the wilderness is a herald. What is a herald? H-E-R-A-L-D. What is a herald? A herald is a person who precedes another person, announcing the second person's arrival. That is what a herald is. And usually, that second person is somebody who is important. Somebody who is prominent. This isn't in my notes, but I have to say it, right? I'm not going to necessarily condone the whole movie to you or whatever. That's not what we do here. But, you know, in A Knight's Tale, my favorite character in the whole movie is the, is the herald. I mean, this guy, Jeffrey Chaucer, he, is, he, he just brings a smile to my face just thinking about it now. That is a herald. So John the Baptist, identified by Matthew as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, is a herald. But of whom? Whose arrival is John announcing? Look at me again, or look with me again at Isaiah 40. Look, starting in verse 9. Okay? Look again. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes. Could it be any clearer for us exactly whose arrival is being announced here? Behold, verse 9, Behold, Elohim. Behold, behold, Adonai, Yahweh is coming. Listen, cities of Judah. Your God is coming. Remember, John is preaching and baptizing in the Judean wilderness. And what is this God who is coming like? What is He like? He's coming with power and authority and with rewards, his people's and his own. Do you see that? The Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. But this God, he's also coming as a shepherd. Do you see that? Verse 11. He, the Lord God, will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Listen, this God who is coming, whom the herald, John the Baptist, is announcing, he is coming as a shepherd with all authority. Does that sound like somebody you know? And how are the people of Judah 
supposed to feel about this? Verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Now, in Isaiah's context, this message of comfort from the prophet Isaiah is in direct response to the prophecy of Isaiah 39, right before Isaiah 40. I'm not going to get into all the details now, but suffice to say that because of the folly of Judah's king Hezekiah, Isaiah, listen, it's important to understand who Isaiah is talking to. Isaiah prophesied that the southern kingdom of Judah would eventually go into Babylonian exile, which they did in 586 B.C., And so Isaiah is also providing an encouraging word of comfort to those same exiled people of Judah that were coming after him. Listen, look at verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, O herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. He's talking to the people of the southern kingdom in his context. But Matthew looks back on the ministry of Jesus and what does he see? He sees a shepherd king with all authority on heaven and on earth who embodies the good news of the grace of God manifest in the cross and resurrection and he sees, Matthew sees John the Baptist as the herald of this coming good news. And in his gospel, he, Matthew, quotes from Isaiah 40 verse 3 because this, listen, the arrival of the God-man, Jesus Christ, is what the prophet Isaiah was pointing to all along. And I don't know about you, but I think that's incredible. This arrival of the God-man, Jesus Christ, He will bring us comfort. Why? Because just like the people of Judah were only in Babylonian exile for 70 years, Jeremiah 25, 11, and their physical exile would come to an end, so, listen, the arrival of the God-man, Jesus Christ, finally, fully, brings to an end the sinner's spiritual exile which is exactly what Pastor Scotch preached back in January from Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. That's what sin is. It is spiritual exile. Your sin, my sin, our sin separates us from a holy God. And there is only one comfort. There is only one rescue. And that comfort, that rescue is in Jesus Christ, the God-man, the shepherd king. Dying in your law place, taking your sins upon himself. That's, it. That's the message of the whole Bible. I pray you're getting a glimpse of this incredible story, this good news that God has been weaving all along. Do you know that the prophet Isaiah wrote those words in Isaiah 40 almost 700 years before Jesus was born? 
Don't tempt me. Don't make me go all the way back to Genesis 3 this morning, because I'll do it. You know I'll do it. So we've seen who John the Baptist is, and we've seen what role John the Baptist played in this great story of redemption. Now, let's go back to Matthew 3. Turn back to Matthew 3. And let's take a look at John's message. Is it consistent with the message of Isaiah 40? And don't tell him, but I'm going to leave all the baptism stuff for Pastor Scott. Okay? Next time he preaches in Matthew 3. Let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 7, please skip down. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The first thing we see here in verse 2 is that John's foundational message for the people of Israel is repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is here. Behold your God. He's coming. foundational message for the people of Israel is repent. What is repentance? The Greek word literally means to change one's mind. It is essentially a spiritual U-turn. It is a recognition that you are going the wrong way and then you do an about face. And in spiritual terms, it is a recognition that you are walking in a manner that is opposed to God. And you stop going that direction and you stop opposing God and you turn around and you humble yourself before God and you agree with God and you walk with God. And I want you to know that this is the essence of the message that we all must hear and respond to and carry with us as we too are heralds of this same kingdom. This call to repentance is in fact a warning to those who are opposed to God. Exhibit A, right there in the text, the Jewish religious leaders. Listen, this is so important. John knows who they are and what they're about. How how does he know this? Reminder. John's father was a Levitical priest whose job was literally in the temple of Herod. John had the view from the inside. He knows who these men are. Isaiah 40 verse 10. Does this ring in your ear? Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. 
Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. What's the point? God is coming and he is all powerful. You better wake up. You better get up. You better clean up. You better line up because your long robes and your Abrahamic lineage will not be enough to save you. That's his message. What the Jewish religious leaders needed, what we all need, is humility and repentance. May God open our ears this morning to hear the preaching of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What else do we see here in John's message? First, it was repentance. We also see wrath, don't we? I mean, look, it's on the text. I've got to preach it, all right? Verse 7, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Verse 10, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Verse 10, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12, this one coming after me, his winnowing fork is in his hand. Verse 12, this one coming after me, the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Friends, we cannot escape it. Part of the message of the kingdom that we preach is wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is the righteous anger and fury of God against sin. And sinners too. It is sinners who will be the recipients of God's wrath. Wasn't very long ago, Pastor Mike preached from Romans 1. You don't have to turn there, just listen. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things skip down to the end of the chapter chapter 1 of Romans and though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them That's the language of wrath. You can't escape it if you read the New Testament and the Old Testament with your eyes open. Finally, what else do we see here in John's message? First it was repentance, then it was wrath. But let's not lose sight of the heart of John's message. And the heart of John's message is this, listen. The king is coming. Verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's coming. He's mightier than I. And isn't this exactly what we saw in Isaiah 40? Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. 
the Lord God comes with might. Who is this king? He is God himself, clothed in human flesh. And what does his kingdom look like? Here on the face of the text, it looks like fire and flame. And I want you to see that. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I want you to see two kinds of fire here. Two kinds. We've already mentioned the fires of wrath and judgment. That's clear on the face of the text. But we also see in this message of John the fire of purification. As gold is placed in fire that the dross might be burned away. The fire of holiness, or more properly, of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity himself. And of course, we know that the fullness of this kingdom arrived when? On the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's wrap it up. What should we take away from the message of John the Baptist, right? This is boots on the ground stuff here. What should we take away from the message of John the Baptist? First, and this is fundamental, it should be clear to us that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. The message of Isaiah 40 is, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes. The message of John the Baptist is, Jesus is coming. Jesus is not merely a wise teacher, though most people in our culture, to be honest, would simply reject his teachings. You know, the teachings on topics like morality and marriage gender, and our need for humility and grace and forgiveness. Jesus is not merely a wise teacher or merely a good example. Jesus is God in human flesh. And when he speaks, he speaks as one who has authority. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus speaks, we better listen. Yes, Jesus is Savior, but he is also Lord. Lord of what? Lord of whom? Everything. Everyone. Everywhere. Jesus is Lord. And that's the first thing we should take away from John the Baptist's message. Jesus is God in human flesh. Second, I think, is this. Those of us who claim to be followers of God should take care to what? Bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, there's no doubt that in context, John is speaking to the Jewish religious leadership of his day. But what of us? What of us in the church? Are we asking ourselves, are we bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Are we bearing fruit in keeping with our professions of faith in Jesus the Christ? And no, we did not talk about this beforehand, but it's right here in my notes. We're in Galatians 5, verse 25. Are we bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or are we relying merely on our external religiosity like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? I just want to remind you that Jesus himself reserved his most scathing words for those whose religion was merely external. This morning we celebrate Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passion Week, culminating in the crucifixion of the Savior. And there is no time, listen, friends, there is no time like the present for us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see that we are in the faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. We will do so here in just a few moments. Finally, let me say this. It is indeed Palm Sunday. And as I have said repeatedly, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet, which means that John's message was not the message. I want you to hear, okay? John's message was not the gospel message in its fullness. The message of John the Baptist was, the king is coming. Just a couple of years later, the shepherd king did come into Jerusalem. And he came into Jerusalem as king. But not on a king's steed. No, he came humbly. He came riding on a donkey. Pastor Mike said in his sermon two weeks ago, a horse is a symbol of war. But a donkey is a symbol of peace. Why a donkey? Why a symbol of peace? Those so many years ago. Don't go there. Just listen. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Friends, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The valleys have been lifted up. Think about this. What does this mean? 
The valleys have been lifted up. The mountains and hills have been made low. The uneven ground has been made level. The difficult places have been made plain. Why? Why? What does this mean? The invitation has been given. Behold your God. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Listen to this. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. This is the gospel. He's coming again. And when this shepherd king returns to take back all that is rightfully his, it will not be on a donkey. One biblical writer says it this way. I saw heaven opened, and behold, not a donkey, but a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood. That's not his blood, friends. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now is the time, friends. Today is the day. The king's arrival was foretold by the Old Testament prophets. We, we saw that. The, the king came from heaven as a savior. The king of kings and lord of lords is coming again as a warrior. Humble yourself before him. Worship him as he is worthy. Obey him as the one who has all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Trust him as the crucified and risen Savior, for he who sits on the white horse is called faithful and true. You will not be disappointed. All glory and honor and power and dominion be to you, O God, and to your Son, Jesus Christ, forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.